everybody. Welcome back to On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today we are going to be continuing with my Beatles trilogy. I don't know what I'm going to call this, my anthology, but we are going to be continuing with part two today. So today we are going into 1965 all the way through 1967, 68. Three, four years of information. I mean, believe me, just in that three, four year period, there's there's so many things. There are so many albums and they changed in just such a short amount of time. So without further ado, let's just get right into it. So in early 1965, John and George with their respective wives, right? So John and Cynthia and George and Patty, they went out to dinner with George's dentist, whose name is John Riley. And this is the famous night, the famous incident where the dentist spiked the Beatles' coffee with LSD. They were just like, what's going on here? I don't even know what's happening. They were absolutely bonkers, out of their mind on LSD. And John said while he was initially stunned by the experience, he was like, what the hell is this? Him and George actually became habitual users. I think George actually really, I think, took to it a lot more because, you know, it's said that with kind of experimental hallucinogenic drugs like acid or LSD or like shrooms, you know, things like that, that it opens up your mind and it, it kind of like expands your horizons a lot more. And George kind of became a lot more introspective, but also he just was looking at the world a lot differently. And this is kind of the gateway to where he started looking into meditation and Hinduism a lot seriously. And he said that these ideas were already inside of him, but LSD helped to unlock the door to reveal themselves to him. So John and George were on LSD and Ringo tried it one time and Paul was really reluctant to try it at all. He was put off of it for an entire year just because he didn't want to take it. He didn't want to be influenced by it. However, in 1966, he was to take LSD. And he said that this totally expanded his thought process. And it expanded like how he thought about himself in relation to the world. And it said that it helped him become a better person. Because, you know, on those kind of drugs, you you look at things a lot differently from a different perspective than probably you wouldn't before when you weren't on these drugs. And so it's just like an eye-opening experience for him. And it helped him look at avant-garde art, actually. He was really into that avant-garde art scene around London. So it was also around this time in 1965 that the Beatles were awarded their MBEs appointed by Queen Elizabeth herself. What's pretty funny about this was everyone, well, not everyone, but a lot of people were protesting this because these awards are traditionally given to military personnel or people of high level kind of intelligence or, you know, just people that are doing the most, I suppose. And the fact that these awards were given to the Beatles, a lot of people actually gave back their MBE because they were like, if the Beatles are getting our awards, well then screw it, I'm giving back my award. And in July of 1965, the Beatles' second motion picture film, Help, was released. It was kind of like a James Bond parody. It was really definitely different from their first movie. 
it centers around a ring that Ringo wears that's like this most expensive jewel on the planet. And these spies are trying to get this ring back and they like kidnap Ringo and the Beatles go on this like mission all over the place to get away from these spies. It's really weird. It's I, I can see where they were going with that James Bond kind of spoof. I mean, if you haven't seen it, I think it's interesting just to watch anyway if you're a Beatles fan and you haven't seen it. I would suggest watching it anyway. Paul said of the film that help was great, but it wasn't our film. We were sort of guest stars. It was fun, but basically as an idea for a film, it was a bit wrong. Yeah, I would say it was definitely a bit wrong. So after completing recording for the album Help in February of 1965, the Beatles flew to the Bahamas to film the scenes for the film that they needed to film. And Richard Lester was the director of the film. He was the director for A Hard Day's Night as well. And the Help soundtrack was formatted in a similar way to A Hard Day's Night, where the soundtrack for the film was on side A, and extra original Beatles songs were on side B. Only two covers were actually on this album, Act Naturally, the one that Ringo sings, and Dizzy Miss Lizzie. So those were the only two covers on this. But again, similarly to what Capitol Records did with A Hard Day's Night, the soundtrack, they put the soundtrack numbers on side A, and then they threw in random instrumental songs on side B. It makes no sense, but that's what Capitol does. These, actually, these two covers were to be the last covers that the Beatles would ever put on their albums, aside from Maggie May on the Let It Be album. Everything else from here on out is completely original in terms of the material that goes on their future albums. And Help was actually the first album of theirs that featured a solo Beatles song. Paul composed Yesterday. That's probably one of their most popular songs ever. The story of how Yesterday came about is actually, it's really interesting how these ideas just come to Paul just like out of thin air, to be honest. So Paul composed Yesterday by himself and the song came to him in a dream. He said that he woke up one morning with the tune stuck in his head and at the time he had a piano next to his bed. So when he woke up, he started playing that melody on the piano. And he was thinking to himself that maybe it was a song that he had heard in passing somewhere. Like, he thought, surely this can't be, like, a song that I come up with. Like, this has to be a song that I've heard somewhere out in the wilderness. And so he went around that day and he's like, hey, do you recognize this melody? Like, who is this song by? And no one knew what it was because it obviously wasn't a song that was out. It was one of Paul's own tunes. And this came to him in a dream. I think that's that really speaks to the magic of Paul McCartney that he can just come up with these amazing concepts for songs or albums in a dream. Like, who can really say that? Who can say that they dreamt of a melody that's never been heard before? They wake up and they're like, wow, I have this song that came to me in a dream. And it becomes one of their best-selling, most popular songs like of all time. It's just mind-blowing to me. I don't really know how it all happened, but that is what it is. So George Martin actually was the one that suggested that he record the song solo because the other Beatles couldn't really add anything else to it. You know what I mean? Like John was like, yeah, I can't add any guitar. It doesn't need it. Ringo was like, yeah, I don't need to put drums on here because the song doesn't really need drums. Like we can't add anything else to this. 
And so George Martin suggested, Paul, just play the song yourself, just you and your acoustic guitar, and that can be enough. Maybe a little bit of an orchestra in the back, and that's all that you need. So Paul initially had the working title of the song Scrambled Egg. It wasn't called Yesterday. He was just putting it as Scrambled Egg. But when he got the lyrics down, he did change it to Yesterday. So during a show in 1965, Paul performed Yesterday Live for the first time by himself on stage. So everyone leaves the stage and Paul is just there on his own with his guitar. And you can tell that he kind of looks a bit maybe embarrassed or a bit shy or a bit like nervous. And there was an interview recently, I believe it might have been Howard Stern, I can't remember, where he said that, yeah, he remembers that instance. And he did say it it was really embarrassing for him, mostly because he didn't want to be the only one on the stage. Like he got so comfortable being with his friends on stage playing music that the thought of him just doing a song on his own was so alien to him that he was really uncomfortable with the notion of doing it. But also he was aware that the song yesterday itself was so different in tone and composition to any of their other rock tunes that they ever did that he thought, well, is this a bit too, is this a bit too ballady? Is this a bit too poppy? Like, what's the deal with this tune? He wasn't really He was kind of a bit embarrassed by the whole thing, like the song and like performing the song. He was kind of really embarrassed by it because, you know, the Beatles were considered a rock and roll band and this tune was really different to what they had ever done before. So, and in fact, he was so embarrassed that he didn't want to release the song as a single in the UK. He didn't even want this song to be out there like that because he was so embarrassed by the whole thing. But Capitol Records is so different, of course, in the U.S., that they insisted that the song was to be released as a single and that Act Naturally was to be the B-side. So, Yesterday was released in the U.S. as a single but not in the U.K., which is quite interesting. That's the whole story on Yesterday. Paul was just so embarrassed by the whole thing, but who knew that it would become one of the most famous songs he would ever write? but also one of the most famous Beatles songs ever. It just came to him in a dream, but he was so embarrassed by the whole thing. But that is the long and short of it of the song Yesterday. And Help, the album, was released on August 6, 1965. And with this release, the Beatles became the first rock group to be nominated for a Grammy Award for Album of the Year. And the album stayed at the top of the charts for 37 weeks. So now the Beatles are going on their third U.S. tour and their most famous U.S. show at Shea Stadium happens on August 15th in New York. They open for 55,600 people and this show is very notorious for the fact that the fans were screaming so loud. I mean, this has been a thing that's been happening with the Beatles since they even started playing their shows. But this show, it it just went to a whole other level where the fans were screaming so loudly that the Beatles couldn't even hear themselves play at all. They couldn't hear themselves think. They couldn't hear themselves play. They couldn't hear if they were in tune, out of tune, nothing. They were just playing. And the crowd got so rowdy. The police were there. People were like climbing over the barricades and they were fainting. Like it just was so absolutely chaotic. But 
Because of this show in particular, the Beatles were actually the first band to influence a new kind of technology called a stage monitor system of loudspeakers specifically for live performances that's implemented in all live shows from this point onwards. So all of those really big, massive, booming stereo systems that are present in a lot of concerts and festivals big arena shows, things like that. We have to give it up to the Beatles because of them, because they were complaining, hey, I can't hear like what I'm playing, what I'm singing, I can't hear myself. And, you know, I'm sure maybe the fans couldn't hear either because they were just screaming. So what's the point of that? So they implemented a new sound system that could be really, really, really loud so that everyone can hear and that it's just a better experience overall. Another revolutionary mark was in September that year. The USA came out with a TV program called The Beatles, and this was an animated cartoon where each episode saw the Beatles get into various different kind of circumstances. It's almost like, it's just like funny, stupid, like Hanna-Barbera type of like comedy, you know what I mean? But this was big because this show marked the first time that a weekly TV series featured animated versions of real-life people. So that's pretty interesting. The Beatles are just checking off all these different kind of like revolutionary markers. They're just doing the most. They're so influential in so many variants. I don't even think people really understand the full scope of just how incredibly influential the Beatles were on so many levels. So now the Beatles are back home in England after their U.S. tour. And by October 1965... They went back into the studio to record their next album, Rubber Soul. I love this album. So this is a common theme where EMI, they wanted the Beatles to put out their new albums in time for the Christmas sales because typically back then, if kids or teens or adults, people didn't have the money to buy a new Beatles album, typically if they saw that they were selling their albums around Christmas time, that people would be more willing to spend the money around Christmas and buy it for their friends, family, you know, whoever. And so that's where a lot of the sales would come from, from these new albums was around the Christmas time. So in October, this is when they were starting to record Rubber Soul in time for these Christmas sales. So they only had two, three months to record an entire new album. And this is where Rubber Soul comes about. However, it only took one month of recording to complete the whole album. I mean, think about that. That's crazy. This whole entire album is the first one where they didn't have any covers. It's all original new material. They're experimenting. They're doing all this new stuff. And it only took one month. How often is it that you get into the recording studio and a band like that just goes in there and they just whip out an album in one month and it becomes one of the best albums of all time? That is so so beyond rare. I can't even begin to describe how rare that is. So Rubber Soul was in part inspired by their tour in the U.S. On this trip, they meet up with Bob Dylan again, but they also meet one of their heroes, Elvis Presley, at his Beverly Hills house. And also while in the U.S., on the radio, they were listening to a lot of soul and Motown music. So Rubber Soul had a couple of those influences sprinkled in throughout the album as well. Not only were they taking inspiration from their U.S. tour, but also they were starting to dive in more with weed and, of course, with LSD because John and George were influenced 
by LSD, and then Ringo started to take LSD as well. Paul was the only one that wasn't doing LSD, he was just doing a bit of weed. LSD was hugely influential because a couple of the tunes on Rubber Soul, I think, have a little bit of that trippy, I don't know, it's just kind of a vibe that you would get when you take LSD and you kind of mess around a little bit. Like maybe Norwegian Wood has a bit of that going on, a bit of Nowhere Man, kind of a bit of everything, you know what I mean? It's just kind of there. And so their influence on drugs and then their influence from America, it's kind of all coming together. And that is basically what Rubber Soul is, kind of at the core of itself. And these recording sessions for Rubber Soul focused more on fine-tuning the musical arrangements of the songs, more so because of their boredom performing live shows. Again, they weren't having a fun time doing live shows at all. While in the studio, they wanted to experiment a little bit more, and they wanted to focus more on fine-tuning some of the arrangements. And that's just kind of where it comes from. This will lead directly into Revolver, which is their the start of their deeper experimentation when it comes to really branching out and seeing, like, how far can we go with doing all these revolutionary techniques that haven't been done before. So... Rubber Soul is really kind of the gateway that leads into bigger, deeper, thought-provoking exploration. Not only that with themselves, but with their music as well. And they wanted to use a lot more instruments at Abbey Road, and they implemented George Martin's classical music knowledge to totally transform their sound in a major way. Rubber Soul was also the first record where they could dedicate 100% of their time to recording. Unlike before, where they were recording while doing tours or press interviews, kind of all that. They had a bit more free time to kind of do what they wanted because they just had come off of touring. And so now they had more time. They weren't doing press junkets. They weren't doing anything else. They were just strictly focused on this album. And so they could create a bit of a better, more well-rounded kind of package. So Day Tripper and We Can Work It Out were recorded during these first sessions as well but these were released as non-album singles a lot later. And to avoid having to promote this album on a lot of various radio shows, the Beatles instead wanted to film promotional video clips, which wasn't necessarily uncommon, but how they produced them and how they did them were a little different because they were kind of the start of what we know as music videos. Not 100% with some of these earlier ones, like they did promotional clips for the songs Help, Day Tripper, Ticket to Ride, and We Can Work It Out. But it was just them kind of playing the music. It wasn't anything where they were filming a music video like we know it now. That comes later when they were doing Paperback Writer and when they were doing Rain. Like those are considered definitely what we would consider early music videos before MTV was even a thing. Like they introduced that first. So during these recording sessions, Paul was given a new bass, which was a Rickenbacker 4001, and this produced a fuller sound in comparison to his Hofner bass. And with this new bass, Paul was open to exploring more intricate bass lines. So you can kind of hear it on, on this album for sure. I mean, this is definitely where they start to take all of these things that they wanted to explore a bit deeper musically and they wanted to just see like where can we where can we go with this with the knowledge that we have now and with the influences around us where can we take this George and John used capos on their guitars which might seem a bit of an insignificant kind of thing to note but this really added 
to a more dynamic sound, whereas before they never really used the capos before. I mean, again, you might think that's a bit inconsequential that, okay, they used capos for the first time, really. What's the point of that? But no, like seriously, it just kind of broadened their musical horizons a lot more with the use of these small things that they weren't even doing before. And so during the recording of the song In My Life, John wanted to mimic the sound of a harpsichord. So George Martin decided he would play the piano solo and record it at half speed. So when played back normally, it sounded like a harpsichord. And also George with his expansion on LSD He's becoming more involved in Hinduism and spiritualism and Indian music. And so this is where he started to implement more Indian instruments. George was taking some sitar lessons and he was starting to bring the sitar into the recording studios. And this is where, you know, George plays the sitar on Norwegian Wood and a few other songs. George really was revolutionary in the fact that he introduced all of these kind of Indian styles and flavors into rock music, which really wasn't a thing before. They were just kind of separate entities. But George was like, no, I mean, why not just kind of bring this into this and see what we can come up with? So actually, his interest in Indian music was also inspired by musicians David Crosby of Crosby, Stills & Nash and from Roger McGuinn, who was the frontman of The Birds. George really was the pioneer in combining these Indian influences into the rock music and putting them into the forefront of people's minds. They also implemented fuzz bass on the song Think For Yourself, and they used a harmonium, which is a free reed organ, which marks the instrument's first ever use in rock music ever. They're just... They're going out here and they're such pioneers. So now I have a couple of facts from a few of the songs on the album that I just kind of wanted to mention. So Norwegian Wood, this is one of my favorite songs on the album. This song is about an affair and John worded the narrative of the song to hide the truth from his wife, Cynthia, that he was sleeping around and he was having an affair. And he worded it in such a weird way that Cynthia, his wife, wouldn't really, I think, pick up on. And the song You Won't See Me, Paul wrote this song about his girlfriend, actress Jane Asher. And I never really talked about Jane Asher before. She was really, really famous in England at the time. She was a big, well-known actress. Her brother, Peter Asher, he was in the music industry. Um, but yeah, Jane Asher, she was in a lot of films and she came from a really well-to-do family. And they met one night and Paul was really like surprised that Jane was even interested because Jane had a love of Broadway, she had a love of show tunes, and she had a love for literature and art and all these things. And, you know, Paul liked art and stuff too, but, you know, Paul, he was like, well, I come from, you know, a modest upbringing in Liverpool, and she comes from a different realm because she is around all these hoity-toity kind of people. But when they started dating, Jane introduced Paul to a whole new world of kind of the finer things in life. And he brought in his literary knowledge with reading a lot of different books and going to plays and just kind of getting a taste for the finer things in life. And they loved each other. But of course, you know, even though he loved her a lot, Paul would sleep around and stuff. They were to get engaged at one point later on. 
but they were to separate because Jane caught him cheating. So, but at this time, you know, they're still in love and Paul writes, you won't see me for Jane Asher, but it's at this time where they start to have a little bit of trouble because this song is pretty much about like, you won't spend time and hang out with me like I want you to spend time with me. You know, Jane was putting her acting career first ahead of maybe spending time with Paul and Paul was not a fan of that. And so the song Nowhere Man, this is one of my favorite Beatles songs like of all time, but on this album too. This is a John Lennon song. John said that this song came to him one night um, fully formed, like it came to him like literally the whole entire thing just came to him one night at his home in Surrey while he was having a hard time trying to write songs for hours, like he just couldn't even come up with anything and then this just boom out of nowhere, it came to him. And the song talks about his concerns that were raised by taking LSD. Again, LSD expands your mind and it opens your mind. And so now he's thinking a bit more complex and he's thinking big picture and he had a bit of concerns, not only about himself and his insecurities and himself and his marriage, but also, you know, as a musician and being a celebrity. He wrote this as a self-loathing tune and he marks this time in his life as his fat Elvis period, um, which is kind of funny, but I mean, you know, he had issues with his looks and he wasn't, he was very insecure. To mask his insecurities, maybe it came out as aggression or comedy or brash, brashness or harshness, things like that. But really inside, like he's just very deeply insecure about his looks and his appearances, and his voice, and everything. And these songs wouldn't even really have happened if they hadn't have met Bob Dylan, because Bob Dylan talks about some of that stuff too. I mean, even though Bob Dylan is more political outwardly in his music, you know, Bob really speaks from the heart on a lot of matters. And, you know, John really took that into consideration when writing Nowhere Man, that he was thinking about a lot of things, you know, like he was a young father, you know, his son Julian Lennon was around. Um, of course, we all know Julian Lennon. And, you know, he was just having a lot of insecurities about him as a father, as a husband, musician, as a Beatle himself, like everything. So this tune is a very, very introspective, deep one for sure. So now the song Michelle, this was written by Paul, of course. This is a Paul McCartney song. And this is another song that Paul wrote when he was a teen in the 50s but it was shelved until he brought it into these recording sessions. John added a middle eight to the song that was inspired by Nina Simone's I Put a Spell on You. And then the song Girl, Girl was written by John and the lyrics describe his archetypal woman that he was searching for. The song features aspects of Greek folk music. An acoustic guitar section was actually made to sound like it was being played on a Greek instrument called a bazooki. So there you go. That's a great tune as well. Now, in my life, this is, this is, I think, in terms of the Beatles repertoire, I think In My Life is one of the most retrospective song that John has written. And this is, I mean, in the Beatles, not in his entire catalog of music. He's written so many songs in his solo career that goes deep. But In My Life, I think, is a really poignant one because this is one where he actively reflects on his youth back in Liverpool before he became famous. You know, talking about his friends, the people that he lost. Um, John initially wrote out specific memories, actually, of his past as a youth, where 
He would cite various places he would see along his everyday bus route like Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields, but he later thought that the lyrics were ridiculous and he just kept it to a kind of generalized reflection of the past. Yeah, it's a beautiful, really beautiful tune. I, I think um, that tune speaks for itself. And so If I Needed Someone was a song written by George, and this was a love song to his wife, Patty Boyd. And again, he would end up marrying Patty Boyd in January of 1966. So at the time, they were just engaged, but they were to become married. And uh, yep, <laughs> this is one of the songs that George would write about Patty. So I was really curious about how Rubber Soul even came to be in terms of how did they come up with the name Rubber Soul? And then like, how did they come up with the album cover? And then how did they come up with like the font and things like that? I mean, I love learning about how these album covers and these titles came to fruition because it's really fascinating. So the idea for the album title Rubber Soul came from Paul himself. And Paul said he got this idea after hearing an American musician calling Mick Jagger singing style as Plastic Soul. Because again, like, you know, in America, soul music was absolutely booming. You know, even from the 60s onwards through the 70s, soul Motown music was absolutely huge. And it was predominantly, again, produced, you know, by black artists and black musicians. You have English white musicians like Mick Jagger and Paul McCartney that are trying to infuse their music, their British music with soul. And so this American musician called Mick Jagger Plastic Soul. And so Paul thought that was really interesting. And he obviously took plastic out and he put rubber instead because I think rubber soul sounds better than plastic soul. But comparing, again, like real American soul music to what British musicians were trying to achieve and their interpretation of what soul was, that was the, that was the play on words that came from rubber soul, which I thought was really interesting. I never really thought that that's where rubber soul as like the term actually came from. But it makes sense like when you think about it, like, oh yeah, that actually, that really does make a whole lot of sense. That's where the title rubber soul comes from. The album cover was taken by their friend, again, Robert Freeman in the garden at John's house. And the idea for the image to be stretched actually came by accident, like 100% it was an accident. So I think when we look at the album cover, it's pretty obvious that the album image is like stretched. It's, it's, like, it's like warped, I suppose. And one day when Robert was projecting the photograph onto an LP-sized piece of cardboard, it accidentally fell over slightly, which obviously when you put perspective into it, it elongated the picture. It's so simple, but it's really interesting. And he showed Paul the following day and he's like, yes, like use that. Like you need to use that. That's amazing. Um, maybe some people don't like that the image is elongated. I don't really mind. I think it's kind of interesting. It adds that weird perspective into it. The font of Rubber Soul on the album was actually created by Charles Front. And he said that the inspiration for the font was taken directly from the album title itself, Rubber Soul. This type of font design specifically became ubiquitous in psychedelic designs thereafter. So again, because of this one little thing that you don't really take into consideration, maybe you thought before 
that this font had kind of always been around. But no, this was created specifically for Rubber Soul and thereafter became ubiquitous in psychedelic designs. So Rubber Soul was released on December 3rd, 1965 in time for the Christmas sales and the singles Day Tripper and We Can Work It Out were released on the same day. And that became the first example of a double A side in the UK. And Rubber Soul held the top spot in the charts for 43 weeks. And this is where, this is really fascinating because I don't know, maybe some people aren't really fans of the Beach Boys. I like the Beach Boys. I like some of their early stuff. I'm not really a fan of their later material. But some of their stuff that they made in the 60s was really, really, really good. Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys has gone on to say that Rubber Soul was the album that inspired him to make Pet Sounds. And Pet Sounds is like, I think Pet Sounds is one of the most popular albums of all time. I think it's in the top 10. I think if you haven't listened to Pet Sounds, you need to because I think it's one of those, it's one of those things that's ingrained in American culture that it became so ubiquitous with that kind of folk, hippie, flower power movement. It really set a precedent. It became like a stepping stone for future bands to kind of copy Pet Sounds, to kind of come out with their own like uh, like the turtles and the birds, the animals, um, other kind of bands like that, you know what I mean? They, they all kind of came out with that similar kind of sound. But so Rubber Soul, and I have to make a note, Rubber Soul in America on Capitol Records was released different because, of course, Capitol Records has to do it different. So firstly, Capitol Records puts out an alternate cover on all of their Beatles albums. Like, that's just what they do. And they often remove two tracks from each album and they replace them with something else. Again, you know, some songs they think wouldn't go well in American audiences and they put other songs on there. Like, um, like they would put like non-album singles like on the album, which is stupid. So on Rubber Soul in America, they took out Nowhere Man, Drive My Car, and What Goes On. And instead, they added I've Just Seen a Face and It's Only Love which were singles in the UK. This iteration of Rubber Soul in America is what Brian Wilson was referring to when he said that Rubber Soul was the album that inspired him to make Pet Sounds, not the UK version. So that's really interesting. I just kind of wanted to put that out there. And some people think, and I, I think I would agree, some people think that Capital made these changes specifically because folk rock music was so popular in America and they wanted Rubber Soul to take that specific direction. So they kind of just wanted to make Rubber Soul a bit more Americanized, and that's what they did. So I just kind of wanted to put that asterisk on Rubber Soul specifically, that Brian Wilson was talking about the American release of Rubber Soul, not the UK version of Rubber Soul. But so yeah, so as I was saying with that thread of thought that I kind of lost the plot on a little bit, um, The Beach Boys became one of the biggest influences on the Beatles and the Beatles, vice versa, became the biggest influence on the Beach Boys. Without Rubber Soul, we wouldn't have Pet Sounds and without Pet Sounds, we would not have Revolver. I just want to put that out there. It's really, it's really, really interesting. I'm going to get into Revolver in a few minutes um, to kind of explain that a bit further because it's going to make sense. But yeah, so they put out Pet Sounds because of Rubber Soul. So Capitol Records would eventually go on to release Nowhere Man and What Goes On, 
on their 1966 compilation album entitled Yesterday and Today. And maybe some of you are like, wait, is that the album that has the famous Butcher cover on it? And yes, you're correct. So for those of you that maybe don't know, Yesterday and Today, the compilation album that Capitol Records put out in America, it pretty much was just a compilation of non-album singles that Capitol did not include on the albums that they released in the U.S., and they put this on Yesterday and Today. And the album cover originally is this image of the Beatles in smocks, and they have baby doll parts like baby doll arms and legs and like heads everywhere. And then they had like bits and pieces of raw meat everywhere. This is considered the Butcher album cover. And so this is what they put out. And they were like shocked. Like Capitol was so shocked that this was being the album cover, that this was made. And so when Capitol saw this, it was a little bit too late, just a little bit because It had already been sent out from the pressing plant into the hands of customers. And Capital, as soon as they heard this news that this was the album cover, they were like, no, we can't have this. And so they ordered all pressing plants to destroy whatever they had. And they ended up replacing the Butcher album cover to what's known as the trunk cover with the Beatles sitting on trunks, like suitcase trunks and things like that, which is a lot more tame. There's not bits and pieces of meat everywhere and random doll parts everywhere. So this is the thing where the Yesterday and Today original that had the butcher cover on it is really well sought after. I mean, an original is going like, if you really want to find it, you could, but it's a lot of money. So they just kind of pasted over the album cover with the new one and then they reproduced the album cover What can you do? It's just kind of one of those things in the Beatles history that's pretty funny. It was just a joke, you know what I mean? It was just a funny joke. But that is the little controversy of yesterday and today. But the controversy does not stop there. No, 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 no. We are fully going into it and we are enraging the American audiences at this point in time. And I'm sure you all know what's coming, okay? So a few months after they release Rubber Soul, they take some time and they do a bit of touring and then they go back in the recording studio to record Revolver from April to June 1966. And Brian Epstein had hoped that 1966 was the year that the Beatles would carry on making another film with an accompanying soundtrack and tours. But the Beatles declined the film project. And because they declined this film project, this gave them an extra three months free to do whatever they wanted to do. And this was the first time since 1962 that the Beatles had any lengthy time off like this. I mean, it's crazy. They had three months to completely dedicate to creating like the best album that they've ever done, at at least at this point in time. And they used that time wisely. So Revolver marked an incredibly noticeable difference in the Beatles' creative endeavors. It was mostly influenced by LSD, of course. You go on and you continue from Rubber Soul when they went to take LSD, and this is just the typical, I mean, from here, on Revolver, and Sgt. Pepper's, and Magical Mystery Tour, and Yellow Submarine, I mean, those 1,000% just continue on and on and on and on, being influenced by LSD and by drugs. So again, I mentioned John and George were heavily into LSD and Ringo tried it, but it was at this point in time that Paul 
was like, okay, I'll take LSD. I'll try it, whatever. And like I mentioned before, this opened his eyes to so many things. It helped him really see himself for who he was introspectively as a person. And he connected more with the art scene in London, right? I already mentioned that before. Revolver is also marked for being the album where George came into his own with songwriting. So George created a lot more songs. He was really trying to focus on his songwriting and he would come into the studio with bits and pieces of songs. They would try to work them into the repertoire. And yeah, he was coming into his own at this point in time. The Beatles had hoped that they could record this album elsewhere. They looked into recording at Stax Studio in Memphis and Atlantic Studios in New York, or they were looking at Motown Records in Detroit, but all of those plans fell through. Can you imagine if they had actually recorded Revolver in America? Wow, that would have been so different. So the first song that was recorded for Revolver was Tomorrow Never Knows, and Paperback Writer and Rain were also recorded in these first sessions. And like I kind of touched upon before, Paperback Writer and Rain were the songs that were to have the following promotional video clips made for them. Seeing as these were to be the non-album singles that they were to release ahead of the album, they wanted to do something different in terms of promoting so that they wouldn't have to do press junkets and radio interviews and things like that. So this is where they literally created a concept for a music video and they went for it. It was kind of uh, rudimentary, but it still really worked. I mean, they literally are music videos as we know music videos to be today. I know that on MTV, the first music video to be put on there was Video Kills, the radio star. But Paperback Writer and Rain are considered the first music videos ever. So I did touch upon briefly the Beach Boys and their influence on the Beatles and vice versa. So it was at this time in 1966 during mid-May that John and Paul were invited by the Beach Boys to an exclusive listening party of their new album Pet Sounds. You know, the Beach Boys were inspired by Rubber Soul. They invited John and Paul to listen to Pet Sounds and say this is what we came up with because we loved Rubber Soul. There was a bit of healthy competition going on because Paul heard God Only Knows by the Beach Boys. And he was like, right, how can I create a song like that? How can I create a song that's just as big as God Only Knows and put it on Revolver? And so I'm telling you, without Revolver, and I'm telling you again, if you have not listened to Pet Sounds, I would 1000% recommend that you do because it's one of the most, I think it's one of the greatest albums of all time. That's just not in my own opinion. That's, I think, in the opinion of like music critics, Rolling Stone magazine, yada, yada, yada if you take that into consideration. They were listening to Pet Sounds and then they came back into the studio and it was said that the group was in really good spirits with each other during these recording sessions. However, this was the time that Paul started to kind of take on a bit more of a stronghold in his leadership over the band and we know that this takes precedent over the course of time, especially with Let It Be. He kind of, in a way, becomes the director of the band and takes over as leader of the band, which is in direct conflict with John, but also with the other ones, too, because, you know, at some point in time, Paul ended up walking out of the studio after a disagreement on the song She Said, She Said. And so this is kind of the start where Paul would take over a bit more of an authoritarian role. I say that in a very nice way, but you know how it can be. Paul just kind of likes that leadership. 
he's so serious about the music and what he's creating as an artist that it's not just about putting out good music, it's about making sure things are perfect. That's just what he's trying to do here. So Revolver was the very, very, very first time that the band wanted to integrate using the studio technology in the making of this album. So instead of just using their own instruments um, and maybe bringing in other kind of instruments, they really wanted to see what kind of studio technology was available to them. And this is a reflection on the band not wanting to cater to live performances, but instead they wanted to work on the soundscapes of the songs without limitation. They didn't want to just create songs that could easily be played to live audiences because, again, at this point in time, they were not keen on doing live shows anymore. They didn't want to do it. They just had to do it because they had to do it. But they didn't want to make songs that could be played live anymore. They were really thinking about, let's just make a song because we want to make a song. I think Revolver as a concept album was thought about a little bit deeper for the first time than perhaps Rubber Soul was. I think Rubber Soul was the start of them thinking about seriously how to construct an album for the first time instead of it just being thought of as a collection of singles. You know, like to really to really emphasize what an album is all about. You know, it's a concept. It's a theme. Like this album had a theme and they stuck to the theme and that's kind of where from this point on until the end, that's where their albums really start to take shape. So it was at this point that the Beatles also added a new sound engineer, 19-year-old Jeff Emmerich. Yes, 19 years old. Can you even believe that? But before the recording process actually started, it was said that John had the idea of wanting Revolver to flow continuously without gaps to differentiate the songs, basically making it like, you know, a concept album, what concepts albums are all about. And Jeff, the sound engineer, noted that the band asked the sound engineers to go against the grain of what was considered normal at the time, meaning that go differently with producing the sound for this album, go out of the box, implying a piano shouldn't sound like a piano, a guitar shouldn't sound like a guitar. And the use of instruments that they never used before was also prominent on a revolver, They used instruments like a tambura, a tabla, a clavichord, and a vibraphone. And also they used a tack piano on this album as well. The guitar on Revolver was a lot more robust than before. George started using a Gibson SG as his preferred guitar for the album. And they also incorporated the use of horn instruments on Gotta Get You Into My Life, and they used sound effects for the first time. So again, they're kind of really experimenting a lot more from Revolver. This is really the first time that they're creating something that really merges on psychedelic, that takes more of a form on Sgt. Pepper's. So a production technique that was created just for the Beatles that had become a key feature in all recording studios from this point forward is the use of an automatic double tracking. EMI engineer Ken Townsend created this on April the 6th, 1966, and this was used specifically for the Beatles to create the sound that they wanted on Revolver, and this instrumentation, this production technique, is used in every single studio everywhere. So it's because of the Beatles that this recording implementation is now in every single recording studio everywhere. On recording Tomorrow Never Knows, they experimented a lot. I think this is the song on Revolver that they experimented with the most. John recorded his vocals by singing through the revolving twin speakers inside a Leslie cabinet. 
on most of the backing track for the song, it was inspired by an idea by Paul where he suggested that they loop the tape, creating the same sounds over and over and over again. And we know what looping is today. A lot of artists out there use loops on keyboards or they make loops on like Ableton or GarageBand and things like that. But Paul was the first one to make looping a mainstream kind of thing for musicians and for albums. Without them and without this album, I think in particular, a lot of people just, they wouldn't have the same techniques that we know of them to be now. So we really have to thank the Beatles for what they did on this album. So yeah, like it was unheard of back then that they would even consider doing looping. But today, yeah, like it's common practice. Everyone does looping today. The lyrics of Tomorrow Never Knows were written by John primarily, and he adapted the words based off of a book that he read called The Psychedelic Experience, a manual based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead. The use of the reverse tape sound that is heard on Rain with John's vocals and the backwards guitar was the first in pop music to be implemented using that technique. The backwards guitar part on I'm Only Sleeping was also done deliberately by George. Basically, he wanted to compose these guitar sections with the view of how the note would sound when the direction of the tape was corrected to normal. So basically, how would it sound when you're recording something backwards and then how would it sound when you correct the tape normally? He did that deliberately and that's what he really wanted to do. And Jeff noted that at the time, even though Abbey Road was technically considered kind of inferior to most recording studios in America, the kind of implementation and the new techniques and the new technology that they were doing on Revolver, it was so revolutionary that when the album came out, all of the studios, again, like especially in America, they totally redid all of their studios and they wanted to try to replicate the sounds that the Beatles had produced on Revolver. So now I have a couple bits of information for a few of the songs on Revolver that I thought were really interesting. So Eleanor Rigby, this track was actually written by all four Beatles. Each one had bits and pieces of lyrics that they wanted to implement on this song. And not one of them is playing an instrument on this track as you've probably noticed. George Martin arranged the track for a string octet drawing inspiration from the Alfred Hitchcock film Psycho. So I'm Only Sleeping. This is one of my favorite songs on this album. This song, as well as Rain, were recorded using a technique where the song was recorded at a faster tempo, and then it was changed during the mixing. Because on I'm Only Sleeping, it kind of feels a little bit off, doesn't it? It feels a little bit like off-kilter, like something is a bit like wrong. That was purposely done. George recorded his guitar solo twice, once to sound clean, and then a second time he played his Gibson SG through a fuzz box to give it that distortion. And a fun fact, during the break before the second bridge on the song, you can hear Paul yawning in the back, and then John saying afterwards, yawn, Paul. I'm going to be looking out for that. And the song Here, There, and Everywhere is a love song written by Paul, and this was Paul's attempt at creating God Only Knows by the Beach Boys. And this is where they wrote Yellow Submarine. John and Paul had written the lyrics for this song, along with help from Donovan. So Donovan actually played a part in writing the lyrics for the song too. And this was intended to be a children's song just for fun. John and Paul had written this song for Ringo to sing on because Ringo has 
a few vocal parts here and there on some of their earlier albums and they wanted to give him that. They wanted to give him like one or two songs to sing on so he had something to contribute besides drums. So they gathered up chains, bells, whistles, and glasses from around the studio to use as background noise on the song. And the brass band section came from EMI's library where basically they took a section of a big band and an orchestra that they already have recorded in their catalog and they rearranged the melody. They just took bits and pieces of different kind of orchestral pieces and they mashed them together and that's essentially the brass band section on that song. And John's mimicking of the lyrics on the song as well were recorded by John singing into an echo chamber. So the song She Said, She Said, Paul walked out on this one as they were recording this song, like I mentioned. Because Paul had walked out, George had to fill in by playing bass and guitar and harmonizing backing vocal. So George did a lot of stuff on this song in particular. The lyrics for the song were inspired by a conversation that was had between John, George, Ringo, actor Peter Fonda, and members of the Birds that happened in August of 1965. Peter Fonda had made the offhand comment that he knew what it was like to be dead because he said that as a child, he technically died during an operation, which is crazy. Like, that's really crazy. But so John heard that and he was like, hmm, I know what it's like to be dead. Right. That sounds pretty cool. Let's implement that into a song. I love that tune. I think this whole album, it's just, its one of their best albums. It's just, oh, every song on this album is just so good. And so the song Got to Get You Into My Life, this was Paul's soul, funky, Motown contribution, pretty much. He wrote the song after he saw Stevie Wonder perform at the Scotch of St. James nightclub in February 1966. Paul described the lyrics of the song as an ode to pot. So this is a song about pot. Gotta get you into my life and smoke some of that green, green grass. Um, So the album artwork was really, really interesting. I think it's their most jarring album cover. And it's, it's creepy to me only because all the other Beatles are lurking off into the distance, but George is the only one that's looking directly at you. And that's a bit off-putting. I don't know about you guys, but the album cover is really off-putting to me because it has realistic eyes and realistic facial features on some of them. Like, George has eyes and lips, and it's so weird. It's so freaky to me. Like, I don't know if I really like that one, but that's the album cover. And this was actually created by their Hamburg friend, Klaus Vormann. Like I mentioned in the first episode, Klaus was an artist, and he created the album cover using a collage method. His art for this was part line drawing and part collage using actual photos that were taken of the Beatles by Robert Freeman from 1964 through 1965. And the aim for this album cover was Klaus wanted to show the departure of sound that the Beatles were putting out now compared to their earlier work. And he especially took inspiration from their song Tomorrow Never Knows. That was the one where he's like, right, I'm listening to this song and this is so beyond anything I've ever heard before. How do I capture the sound on an album cover with their music? And that's what he did with Tomorrow Never Knows. So Klaus had the choice and he wanted to do black and white as opposed to doing color. And that was that was deliberate. He wanted to do that specifically. Can you imagine if that album cover was in color? Oh my God, that would be so much. That would be, that would be sensation overload on the eyes. So he created this collage 
And apparently it was said that when Klaus showed this art to Brian Epstein, that Brian cried because he was so happy that Klaus was able to capture the experimental sound of the Beatles on the album cover. And so that makes me love the album cover even more because it was done from their friend from Hamburg, Klaus, and it's a really special one. Brian loved it. Everyone loved it. So I really, really enjoy Revolver as a total package, but the album cover too, it makes me appreciate it a little bit more. So how they got the album title Revolver was also kind of like how they came up with Rubber Soul as kind of a pun. It was referred to in the beginning as a handgun and the revolving motion that records make on a record player. It was first going to be in reference to a handgun, but then they were like, no, you know what? Like the revolving motion of a record, like what kind of motion do records play? They revolve. And so they came up with Revolver. They initially had a few other working album titles as well that they thought about that I thought were really interesting. They had one here that was called Abracadabra until they found out that another band used the title, so they scrapped Abracadabra. They also thought about using Four Sides to the Circle, and Ringo jokingly suggested using After Geography as a play on the Rolling Stones album title Aftermath. (laughs) You get it? After Geography, Aftermath. Other options were Bubble and Squeak, Beatles on Safari, Freewheeling Beatles, and Pendulum. I kind of don't mind Four Sides to the Circle. That's really interesting. I don't mind that one. And I also don't mind Pendulum. But Freewheeling Beatles, that's a ripoff to Freewheeling Bob Dylan, <laughs> of course. But yeah, Revolver, that had to be the one. That just sounds like it fits perfectly. And they chose to slowly release some of the songs to the radio stations at first because they knew that Revolver was extremely different to what they had ever come out with before, and they weren't really sure how the public would take these new songs. So they decided that they would release some of the songs slowly. They would let them come in, let the public have time to digest it, and then they were to put the album out. And Revolver was released on August 5th, 1966. And Eleanor Rigby and Yellow Submarine were the double A-side singles that were released. Revolver stayed at the top of the charts for 34 weeks. And Eleanor Rigby was the popular single in the UK. So Capitol Records decided that they would push Yellow Submarine to be different because they were afraid of pushing religious undertones. And that's where we're going to circle right back around to one of the biggest controversies that has ever been embroiled in with the Beatles. So one month before they recorded Revolver, in March of 1966, John Lennon sits down with journalist Maureen Cleave for just kind of a candid interview. They were friends, and so John felt like he could talk to her openly about some things that were on his mind, and he basically says that the Beatles are bigger than Jesus. Okay, this just totally swept the Bible Belt part of America by storm. They were so not happy that John Lennon made this comment because they misinterpreted what he said. By John saying that they were bigger than Jesus, they took on the notion that they thought that they were better than Jesus Christ. Like, oh, how dare you say that you're bigger and better than Jesus Christ, the almighty savior to our people? How dare you save that? So it went so far 
like too far to where radio stations were banning the Beatles in America, specifically in the Bible Belt in the South, right, where religion was really, really a strong facet of every household down there. Teenagers were starting bonfires and a lot of radio stations were promoting the act of burning their Beatle memorabilia, their Beatle albums, literally. You can look up photos of bonfires of people throwing their Beatles albums in these massive bonfires. How absolutely stupid is that? How moronic really is that? You purchased those Beatles albums. The money has already gone to the Beatles. Do you really think that burning your album is going to make any shred of difference to them? It means nothing. And it went as far as the Ku Klux Klan getting involved, saying that they were going to boycott the Beatles from coming and playing in America, okay? And it's like, listen, this is a lot. So John made this comment. They came out with Revolver. And when they were going on their tour, when they went to America, they were bombarded with press and the press were hounding them for a comment like john can you explain what you meant by the beatles are bigger than jesus and it obviously got taken out of context because john pretty much meant that the beatles are bigger than religion in england you know kids are no longer going to church and they're no longer getting involved in organized religion that they're turning to music and the beatles were the biggest thing at the time And he was just saying that the Beatles, in some aspects, are bigger than religion. That some kids make the Beatles out to be almost like these religious figures. You know what I mean? Like they were praising the Beatles and they were loving the Beatles almost like you would praise Jesus in church. It's kind of like that funny thing. But he was saying that organized religion and religion was on its way out, that the new generation was not all about making religion all about their life, that they were going with what they wanted to go with, and they were listening to music more, rock and roll music, which was really not popular in church because they were like, oh, they, they speak the devil. They play their devil's music, and that's so stupid. But that's what he was saying. And especially in England, he was commenting on the Beatles being, quote, bigger than Jesus in England. He wasn't saying anything about America. So John Lennon had to like day after day after day in America while they were on their tour in 1966. He just had to repeat the same fucking thing over and over again that, listen, this was taken out of context. Like, what do you want me to say? I'm not saying that the Beatles are bigger than Christ as a figure. I just said what I said and it got taken out of context. Like, he didn't, well, he did apologize, but you can tell like he didn't want to apologize because he knew what he said was right, okay? And this is so stupid. But it was really nice that Brian Epstein and the other Beatles were backing him, and they knew what he meant, of course. But everyone else in America, especially, again, in the South, in the Bible Belt part of America, where religion is stronghold over its people, in those communities, they were just so unappreciative of what John was even trying to say. Not only that, the Vatican itself issued a protest, too, of the Beatles, and they were banning Beatles albums, the Beatles music everywhere, like not even actually just in America. But what was interesting, too, was some bits of Spain and Dutch radio stations and in South Africa, they were also banning the Beatles, too. 
but it just became more of a fanfare in America. And literally, teens and people were burning Beatles albums, thinking that they were doing something and they weren't, okay? Brian Epstein accused this publication datebook of having taken John Lennon's words out of context. And at one of these press conferences, John said this, If I'd have said television was more popular than Jesus, I might have gotten away with it. Which is true. Like, and that's that's a true fact as well. Television was also more popular than kids going to church and praising Jesus. You know what I mean? Like, it's not anything crazy that he was saying. It was the truth. John claimed that he was referring to how other people viewed their success. But at the prompting of reporters, he eventually concluded, if you want me to apologize, if that will make you happy, then okay, I'm sorry. But clearly he was so fed up. And at this point, we're getting a different John Lennon. This is where the John Lennon we knew from before starts morphing into more of a political figure, you know, because he's seeing that his words can get misconstrued so easily by the public. You know, he was really looking outward. He was seeing the ripple effect that this was taking, and he became a lot more ingrained in politics and in expressing himself more vocally about certain kinds of things than before because this almost gave him a bit of a platform to speak his mind about things, even though this was taken out of context by the interview that he did on this publication back in England. It just became, I think, this stepping stone for him to voice his opinion a lot more freely on other things at this point in time. So yeah, that's the main controversy that I wanted to talk about. That was just absolutely mind-blowing. So that was before Revolver came out. So now Revolver is out. It was released in the summertime. So now they're going on a world tour. And again, by this point, they were done. They were so done with touring everywhere and especially in America after this happened. They just were like, I'm done touring. But they... They had to do it. They had to go on their last tour. And in John Lennon's opinion, he said that they could send out four waxworks on stage and that would satisfy the crowds. Beatle concerts are nothing to do with music anymore. They're just bloody tribal rituals. So two days after finishing Revolver, they set off on this tour that started in West Germany. And while they were in Hamburg, they received an anonymous telegram stating don't go to Tokyo, your life is in danger. And the threat was taken seriously in light of controversy surrounding the tour among Japan's religious and conservative groups. It just wasn't a good situation, of course. You know, when you hear that your life is in danger, don't go. I don't know who obviously sent that. We don't know. It's anonymous, but like they must have had some insider information. And um, yeah, they took that very seriously. And as an added precaution, 35,000 police were mobilized and tasked with protecting the group, who were transported from hotels to concert venues and armored vehicles. This added a whole other layer of why are we touring in the first place? This isn't fun anymore. After doing a tour of the Philippines, the Beatles unintentionally angered the nation's first lady, Imelda Marcos, who had expected the Beatles to attend a breakfast reception with her at the presidential palace. But when presented with this invitation, Brian Epstein politely declined on behalf of the Beatles, 
Apparently, this was not the thing to do. Apparently, the policy was if you were asked by the nation's first lady to a dinner or a breakfast or any invitation you had to accept. And so for them to turn that down, that really enraged people in the Philippines. And so this is another added thing where they're getting death threats from Japan. They're destroying the Beatles albums in the U.S. They unintentionally did this thing in the Philippines. It became an absolute nightmare especially at the airports and things just traveling everywhere. People were clamoring all over them. They had to get more security. This incited riots and this endangered the group even further that they were afraid that they wouldn't be able to leave the country. Like, can you even imagine that? I just, I can't. So, you know, the Beatles are on this tour and now they're in America. So as preparations were made for this U.S. tour, the Beatles knew like, listen, this is this is it. Like, this is the end. But also, we can't be doing this anymore. Like, they just can't hear us. Even with the added technology of those sound systems that were created for them via Shea Stadium, it wasn't enough. It was not enough power. They just, they couldn't do it anymore. So it was a real struggle. And it just came to a head. And they said, we cannot continue to go on anymore. We can't go on any tours. And so by August of 1966, that would be their last tour. They toured America and they're done. They're like, we can't do this anymore. End it. We're done. So the Beatles returned to England and rumors around the world began to circulate that they had broken up, which was not true. Of course, it was not true that they had broken up. It was simply that they were done touring and they would never tour again. Like it, it would never happen. You know, it just it could not happen. And George Harrison informed Brian Epstein that he was leaving the band, but, you know, he was persuaded to stay on on the assurance that, listen, we decided there's no more tours. It's going to be fine. You know, we're just going to keep on making music. Don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. So George was like, all right, and he came back. So when they came back to England upon these tours, they took a three-month break. And during this, you know, each of the Beatles had their own individual interests that they would do on this three-month break. George traveled to India for six weeks to study the sitar under the instruction of Ravi Shankar, and he developed further his interest in Hindu philosophy. Paul really was the one who was kind of the director over the Beatles. He was really stronghold and strong fast over their music, and Paul was the last one. He was the last one to fully accept that touring was done. Everyone else was like, yeah, we can't do this. But Paul was like, really? Is it really done? Like, is that really what it is? And but Paul was like, yeah, yeah, I guess I guess you're right. I guess we are fully done. And so Paul needs something to do. Like he can't just not make music. He needs something to do. And so he collaborated with George Martin on the soundtrack for the film The Family Way. And he went on holiday in Kenya with Mal Evans, their road manager. Mal Evans is awesome. Mal Evans is really funny. Um, he's a cool person. I didn't really talk about Mal Evans, but there isn't really too much. I mean, he's just a really nice guy um, from what I've researched about him over the years. But yeah, he's really nice. And so Paul went on vacation in Kenya with Mal Evans. And John took an acting role, a serious kind of acting role in the movie How I Won the War. And they filmed that in Spain in 1966. And John, at this point, started to attend art showings because, again, John and Paul, they took acid together. Paul introduced John to more of the art scene, and John was starting to get into it. So John thought he would spend some time at various art galleries, and one was the Intica Gallery, 
where he would eventually meet his future wife, Yoko Ono. And Ringo used the break to spend time with his wife, Maureen, and his son, Zach Starkey. So after this three-month break, they all come together at Abbey Road, and they decide where do we go next. You know, they had a lot more room to experiment even further with their music because they were not touring anymore. They didn't have any press stuff or radio interviews to do. They were free to get as crazy and wild as they wanted. And so Paul suggested that they needed to separate themselves from their own music because they had been so heavily ingrained in their own music that this break from touring and all these other things that were going on, intrapersonal stuff, it was too much. So as LSD was expanding Paul's mind, he came up with this concept of, we need to get away from ourselves. How about for this next album, we create an alter ego band where I'm not Paul McCartney, you're not John Lennon, you're not George Harrison, and you're not Ringo Starr. How about we just are these random people in this Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band? And they thought, okay. So John as well had become a lot more introspective while he was filming How I Won the War. And he had a lot more time to think. They all did. They all had a lot more time to think. But John was really nervous and really worried about the future of not only himself, but of the Beatles. He wasn't sure how things would turn out. They had no idea. And so his anxiety over the future turned into music. And this is where he created Strawberry Fields Forever. And Strawberry Fields is a real place in Liverpool. It's kind of a, a place, kind of like a cemetery in a way, but it's just like um like a field, like a, a park, I guess, where John and his school friends would go hang out back in the day in Liverpool. So he was just thinking a lot more about his past. You know, this came earlier from In My Life, where he put Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane in there at first, but he scrapped that idea, like I mentioned. So now he's bringing Strawberry Fields back. And this is where he created more of taking that inspiration again and making it really different. They start recording Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and the first songs that they come out with were Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields. And recording Sgt. Pepper's took over 700 hours, literally 700 hours. And I also want to say again, one of the main influences on Sgt. Pepper's was the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds yet again. Yet again, two albums of the Beatles were inspired by Pet Sounds. You have to listen to it if you haven't, but anyway. So Pet Sounds was the main influence, but there was another influence where he took inspiration from this debut album by the band Mothers of Invention called Freak Out. That was the album. And this was considered the first example of a true concept album in rock music, where it was totally psychedelic. I've never heard it, but you could liken it to Dark Side of the Moon, Pink Floyd, those kind of concept albums. That is considered technically the first example because they did it first before Revolver and Sgt. Pepper's. But yeah, Sgt. Pepper's is 1 million percent a full concept album, like to the dictionary definition of what that means. 100%. So the band insisted everything on Sgt. Pepper's was to be completely different, like literally everything. They had microphones down the bells of brass instruments and headphones turning into microphones attached to violins. And they also used giant oscillators to vary the speed of instruments and vocals. 
And they had parts of tape that were sliced and diced and spliced together in all which ways. And they wanted to express how they were feeling on the inside, and they wanted that to reflect outwardly in their surroundings. So they wanted to change the drab inside of Abbey Road Studios, and they created a really crazy, psychedelic, colorful inside of Abbey Road Studios. They added lava lamps, they added a red darkroom lamp, and a stroboscope that they would eventually get rid of. But they were totally keen with making sure Abbey Road was looking the exact way that they were feeling and making sure the music matched the surroundings 100%. The studio morphed into the band's personal clubhouse with people like Mick Jagger, Donovan, and David Crosby visiting the studio. Everyone was coming in here to check this out like, hey, what's going on? We're in, you know, we're in town. Can we check out Abbey Road? Wow, look at all these things around Abbey Road, all the lights and things. Crazy. And of course, they took a lot of drugs, like a copious amount of drugs, and they dressed in psychedelic clothes for these recording sessions. Of course they did. So like I mentioned, Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane, along with When I'm 64, were the first songs that were to come out of these recording sessions. And When I'm 64 was a song that was taken again from Paul's youth This was one of the early songs he wrote when he was about 15 in Liverpool. I don't remember if I mentioned that. I thought I did. If I haven't mentioned it before, that's what it was. It was a song from his youth that he brought back. So they had the thought about making a TV special based on the album, but the cost for this project was astronomical. They crunched the numbers. They were like, yeah, um, we can't do that. It's too much money. So they ended up scrapping that. But that's where it's going to come in later with Let It Be As We Know, of course. The February 15th recording studio sessions for Within You and Without You was noted to be very atmospheric in the studio. There were Indian carpets on the walls with dim lighting and incense burning to evoke the right mood for the song. And this is 1000% one of the most Indian-influenced songs that they've ever done, one of the most. So as they were kind of recording the album and the album was not done yet, they were pressured by EMI to release a single. So that's where they released Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane because those were already done. Press began to swirl around the notion that the Beatles had run out of success because they had not come out with singles yet. This was before Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane was released. But Paul was like, haha, you think we're ending our success, that we have no success left, that we have run out of time? Wait until you hear what we're coming out with. As was typical practice, they released these non-album singles. And of course, they couldn't put these album singles on the album because they were non-album singles. And so therefore, the songs couldn't be put on Sgt. Pepper's. And in retrospect, George Martin said that this was the biggest mistake of his career, not putting Strawberry Fields or Penny Lane on the album because it was too late. They couldn't put these on there. But... I mean, what can you do? They were big tunes nonetheless. I think it worked out for what it was, even though George Martin regrets it 1 million percent, but it worked out for what it was. And George Harrison's role was really important on this album because he was introducing all these new things, all these new kind of flavor profiles into the music with all these bits of different instruments. You know, he came back from India and he was like, you guys have to listen to this. You guys have to see what I can do on the sitar. You guys have to see what I can do on the timbura, you know. And he was bringing in all these um, Indian musicians to come in and play on the songs. And it was just like really unfolding nicely in such a vibrant way. It was really, really cool. So while they were in the studio, 
in April. To complete some of the overdubbing for the album, they went back to George's song, Only a Northern Song, and they finished it so that it could be included on the Yellow Submarine movie that they were coming out with. That was in the works alongside Magical Mystery Tour that I'm going to talk about in a few minutes. So they went back to Only a Northern Song and they, and they completed that during the April recording sessions. And so, of course, I couldn't not talk about some of these very important songs on this album. I had to pull facts for some of these tunes that they're so big and influential. So Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. This came up as a idea from John's son, Julian, who was about four at the time. Julian was an avid drawer and he one day showed his father a drawing he had done of his classmate Lucy who he had a crush on and he said look dad it's Lucy in the sky with diamonds. He took that title and he went with it and Lucy in the sky with diamonds lyrically was taken from Alice in Wonderland and of course Alice in Wonderland is this absolute trip of a movie. I haven't even fully seen the movie because it's too it's too wacky tobacky for me it's too crazy. But yeah, so he took inspiration from Alice in Wonderland for the lyrics of the song. And some people think that Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds is an anagram for LSD. So the next tune I have is with a little help from my friends. And this song was written by John and Paul specifically as a song for Ringo to contribute his vocals on the album. They only recorded 10 takes of the song and they were in the studio one day. They recorded this 10 times. Ringo was like, oh, okay, I'm tired. Bye, I'm going to leave. And as Ringo was leaving, he was heading down the stairs. The band was like, no, Ringo, come back. Like, come back and sing like one more time. Like, just one more time, come back and sing with us. And they brought a microphone and they recorded the vocals. And the Beatles were there around Ringo to give him support. And it was really, really sweet to hear that, to be honest. And this song sparked one of the most popular covers, like, of all time, I would imagine. I think this song was covered a million and one times. But the most popular cover to come out from this was the one that Joe Cocker did in 1968. So the next tune being from the benefit of Mr. Kite, this was written by John and the inspiration came from an 1843 circus poster that he saw one day while out in an antique store in Kent. It was just kind of like a circus promotional poster for this man, Mr. Kite. And it said being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. And he saw that and he was like, wow, that would come out to be a really interesting song title, but also an interesting song where, you know, it was all about the circus and all about these crazy circus things that happen. And John asked the sound engineers to make the song sound as close to a circus as possible so that you could smell the sawdust. So the sound engineers created a collage of noises with random recordings of harmoniums, harmonicas and a steam organ to really make you feel like you're in the circus and I think they did that spot on and I have a little fact about lovely Rita not too much about this one I thought it was kind of interesting Paul wrote this tune and it came about when Paul learned one day that in America the term for a traffic warden was a meter maid so lovely Rita meter maid you know Paul He likes to kind of play words upon each other in a funny kind of rhyming scheme. And so that's where Lovely Rita comes from. So now, A Day in the Life. This is the one I have the most information on because I think it's their most innovative tune that they've ever done. The lyrics were inspired by the death of John and Paul's friend, Tara Brown. And Tara Brown was the heir to the Guinness Brewery fortune. He was only 21 when he died. And he died in a car crash 
on December 18, 1966. And so the second verse, talking about the 4,000 holes, came from an article in the Daily Mail that John had read that said, There are 4,000 holes in a road in Blackburn, Lancashire, or 126 of a hole per person, according to a council survey. If Blackburn is typical, there are 2 million holes in Britain's roads and 300,000 in London. So that was the article that he read. And funny enough, you know how the lyric goes... And though the holes were rather small, they had to count them all. Now they know how many holes it takes to fill the Albert Hall. Okay, that lyric. The Royal Albert Hall itself banned the song from being played at the Albert Hall ever because when Brian Epstein had sent the Royal Albert Hall the song because they mentioned the Albert Hall in the song, they were like, "Uh uh-uh, we can't be having this people thinking that we could have holes in our auditorium? Absolutely not. We are not having this song being played. We don't want to say that we have all these holes in our auditorium. Absolutely not. Mm -mm -mm. Which is so weird. Like no one would actually think that there were holes in the Albert Hall, but they just didn't want that weird press around them. They didn't want that connotation, which is so bizarre. And the lyric, I'd love to turn you on, was a reference to drugs. It's also a reference to sex, of course, but it was mainly a reference to drugs. They took inspiration from the quote by psychologist Tim Leary, turn on, tune in, drop out. And of course, this was during the time that this kind of dropping acid, what do you call it? Like a scene, a craze that was happening around this time was really, really popular. So this whole thing of turn on, tune in, drop out was starting to become popular among the teens in the late 60s alongside the flower power kind of scene. And so that's where they came up with the lyric, I'd love to turn you on. But obviously it's a reference to drugs, like dropping drugs and, you know, turn you on to drugs. But also it's a reference to sex, of course, we know that. And so for the orchestral part of the song, John told George Martin he wanted something that builds up from nothing and then sounds like it's the end of the world. And that is a pretty good way to describe it. It's kind of crazy and weird and it like it, it's jolting. It's jolting to hear it. It always didn't sit right with me, that orchestral part. And Paul suggested that the orchestra improvise over the segment, meaning do whatever you want to do. Like just play any note you want to play. It literally doesn't matter. Just play what you want to play. George Martin had reservations that a classically trained orchestra would have a hard time doing that request. So George Martin decided to write a really loose score for the orchestra to follow. Basically, he wrote the lowest note and he wrote the highest note. And then he wrote some squiggles in between of where basically each instrument should be. The orchestra was looking at George Martin like he has five million heads. Like, you want us to do this? But yeah, so they ended up doing that. And this orchestra piece was recorded multiple times and then it was overdubbed onto a single tape, making it sound like one massive big crescendo that only happened once. Like they took bits and pieces and they put it together. A Day in the Life was banned on the radio for that lyric, I'd love to turn you on, right? Of course. The album cover was designed by artists Peter Blake and Jan Haworth. Peter said of the concept, I offered the idea that if they had just played a concert in the park, the cover could be a photograph of the group just after the concert with the crowd who had just watched the concert watching them. If we did this by using cardboard cutouts, it could be a magical crowd of whomever they wanted. And they liked that idea, and Paul provided them with a drawing which Peter and Jan took as further inspiration for the cover. And this is by far one of the most 
iconic album covers of all time. So on the cover, the Beatles are standing with life-size cardboard cutouts of famous people. And there's a bass drum that was painted by Joe F. Grafe that showed the album title, of course, Sgt. Pepper's. And at the bottom, there were flowers that were arranged to say the Beatles. And then next to the boys are actual wax models of themselves that they took from Madame Tussauds. The -the behind-the-scenes photos for this is really mind-blowing because it's just a built-up set. You, You would probably think that maybe this album cover was a collage of photos kind of copied on top of each other. No, literally, it was built. It was a whole set that was built. It was real cardboard cutouts, real flowers, real stuff that was arranged. All the Beatles had to do was stand there and they snapped the photo, and that was it. And it cost them 3,000 pounds, which is unheard of that you would spend that much money on an album cover back then. I think the most was maybe about 50 pounds or a lot less than 50 pounds, but they wanted to go all out because they had the time, they had the money, and they thought, well, why not? It makes the most sense to do it, so they did it. And something that was also really revolutionary that, again, we take for granted, but back then it was so revolutionary they printed the lyrics on the back of the album cover, which literally was the first time ever that that had been done, ever, on a rock album. Like, can you think about that? We take that for granted now, but back then that was so revolutionary. That was just never done. And then this became industry standard from that point on. So when the album was completed, the Beatles took an acetate tape of the album over to the apartment of their friend and singer Cass Elliott, who was one of the singers for the Mamas and the Papas. So they went over to her place. She was hanging out in London. And at 6 a.m., they played the album for her at full blast with the windows open in her flat. And so when you think about it, her neighbors were listening, but they were unaware, of course, but they were listening to unreleased Beatles music, that they were listening to one of the most revolutionary albums of all time. But Sgt. Pepper's was completed on April the 21st, 1967, with the finished recording of random noises and voices that were put on the run-out groove, which is interesting as well. Like, the run-out groove pretty much is meant to just have nothing on it, but they wanted to put random little bits and pieces of noise and voices on there. And then there was a noise added that could only be heard by dogs and too loud for humans to hear, which is interesting. So I would be curious to see if anyone plays that album with their dog. I wonder if they would like look at the record player like, what's that? What is that noise? I thought that's really, that is so genius. That's so creative. So before the album was officially released, Brian Epstein held a launch party for the album at his house on May 19th, 1967. And this whole launch party further signified the importance of the album's release, of course, because the press was there. They were taking photos, like they were showing people that, listen, this is going to be one of the biggest albums that has ever come out. We have to do this album justice. We have to do a launch party for this. Like, get ready because it's going to blow your brains. And this was actually the first close encounter with the press that the Beatles had in over a year since they left doing tours. How crazy is that? So, a few days later, Sgt. Pepper's was officially released on May 26 in the UK. Mind-blowingly enough, this was the first album of theirs that was the exact same track listing in both the US and the UK. 
Thank God for that one. So the critics and the fans were raving about this album, saying that it was the album that defined the summer love hippie movement, and it topped the album charts for 23 weeks, and it sold more than 250,000 copies in the first week of sales. And in its first three months, it sold more than 2.5 million copies. And it's still considered one of the greatest albums of all time. So we're coming to a close. We're almost done with this episode. We are just going to talk about Magical Mystery Tour combined with a few other things that happened in between. So after they completed Sgt. Pepper's, of course, they're not touring the album. That's just not what happened. They stopped touring. So they thought, why don't we come out with two films? One was Magical Mystery Tour and the other was Yellow Submarine. Again, Magical Mystery Tour the movie, similarly to Sgt. Pepper's, was inspired by Paul's trip on LSD. Paul wanted to create a movie with a psychedelic theme that captured a similar experience to what author Ken Casey had done. It's so interesting. So Ken Casey is an author and he had this, I'm calling it a cult, but he had a group of people with him that were called the Merry Pranksters. So Ken Casey and his Merry Pranksters, they all take LSD, and he was a big proponent of LSD, I should mention as well, and they go on this bus drive along the U.S. West Coast, and this became widely publicized, and Paul saw this, and he's like, wow, that's really interesting. How about I create a similar movie experience where you're going on this bus journey and you're experiencing all these wacky, weird things on LSD? Isn't that so funny? So that's what Magical Mystery Tour is. It's a psychedelic bus ride with Paul's memories of holidaying on coach tours as a child. And the film was unscripted. So Paul was the director of the movie. He was really the one spearheading this movie. He was really pushing for this film. And they started to make music for the film in April of 1967 while simultaneously making music for the Yellow Submarine film. And Yellow Submarine, as we know, is an animated film. So they don't need to do much besides just make music and maybe come in and cameo and do a bit of voiceover here and there. They don't need to do much. So while they were in the studio and they were making music for both of these albums, they released the non-album single All You Need Is Love in July of 1967. And they premiered the song live on a TV program called Our World. And it was seen by over 350 million viewers, okay, 350 million. And it was adopted by the Flower Power Movement as their theme song, of course. All you need is love. Okay, so this is where things start to take a turn for the worse, okay, because this marks a big change for the Beatles, and this sparks off a lot of stuff that was to create a domino effect. And I hate getting into negatives and sad stuff on this podcast, but this is very important and I have to do this justice and so I'm going to talk about it. So while they were in the middle of recording both of these albums, they take a bit of a break on August the 27th and they went on a meditation seminar in Bangor, Wales with the Maharishi Yogi. And while they were on this meditation seminar, they got a phone call that their manager, Brian Epstein, died of an apparent drug overdose. This is speculation, okay? This is just speculation, but it's widely rumored that he died of a suicide. 
that this was not an accident, that this was actually a suicide. But, you know, the coroner's report said that his official cause of death was accidental. But I just wanted to put that out there because it's been widely talked about as being a suicide. And let me tell you, this shocked every member of the Beatles, everybody. This like really blew people's minds. They were not expecting this to happen. They did not think that Brian could ever in a million years die so young. I can't remember exactly how old Brian was, but I believe from my memory, he was mid-late 30s. He wasn't that old. He was mid-late 30s, if I'm remembering correctly. What we also didn't know, what a lot of people didn't know, was Brian was suffering in silence. Um, And I'll get into that in just a minute when I go in depth a bit more about his death. But so when the Beatles hear about this, they really thought this is the end. Like this is the end of the Beatles. Like Brian was the glue that held all the Beatles together. Like he was the one that really did so much for them. He was their manager, of course. Brian did so much stuff and the Beatles were faced with what to do. Like, what do we do at this point? Brian's dead. How can we go on making music? How can we go on doing the business side of things? What are we doing? John literally thought, like, this is it. Like, we're fucked. Like, this is the end of us. Like, we like we can't possibly go on anymore. Like, this is it. So after Brian's death at some point, the Beatles have a meeting and Paul suggested, listen, we should carry on with the albums and with the movie because Brian gave his approval before his passing of the film. So I think we have to do it for us, but for Brian too. And so Paul wanted to make sure, you know, each Beatle had something to focus on while they were dealing with the loss of Brian. So I'm going to get into Brian's death a bit more and a bit of Brian's backstory, you know, because it's important I talk about it. So how this happened was on the 24th of August, Brian asked Peter Brown and Jeffrey Ellis, some friends, down to Kingsley Hill for a holiday weekend. So after Peter and Jeffrey arrived at Kingsley Hill, Brian decided to drive back home to London alone because some friends that he invited didn't show up. He expected them to show up and they didn't show up. And so he thought, okay, well, I'm just going to leave. But they did actually turn up when Brian left. That's the ironic part. So Brian left anyway. He went back home. And Brian phoned Peter at 5 p.m. the next day from his house in London on Chapel Street. And Peter thought that Brian sounded very groggy and suggested that Brian take a train back down to the nearest railway station instead of driving under the influence. So, something about Brian Epstein that I want to mention here, two things actually. The first is Brian was doing some drugs, okay? When the Beatles were introduced to weed back in 1964 on that world tour that they did in America, when Bob Dylan introduced them to weed, Brian started doing weed. Fine, whatever. But then Brian started doing LSD and Brian started doing prescription pills. He was on some prescription pills He was really in the drugs, and I don't really think a lot of people really knew about that, at least except maybe not other people that weren't outside of his circle. I think people inside his circle, I think, maybe knew, but also I think Brian was really good at masking that he was taking drugs and stuff. And another part about Brian that I didn't mention was, you know, Brian was gay. And you have to think, this is the 60s, okay? This is something that was not talked about that this was shunned, that this was seen as 
you know, if you were anything else but straight, you were seen as an absolute failure in society's eyes, right? So Brian knew he was gay from a very early age. And of course, you have to hide that for back in the day. That's just what they did. They hid that stuff. Brian went to therapy when he, but this was before he owned this record store. And Brian went to therapy and he told his therapist for the first time, this is the first time he told anybody that he was gay. And what was weird was the therapist told Brian's father, you know, Brian's gay and I highly suggest Brian leave Liverpool now. Probably because if anyone knew of Brian's homosexuality that he could be beaten or killed. And that was a that that is still a real threat that happens now. But back then, oh my god, that was that was on his mind probably. He did have a autobiography. I haven't read that, but oh, man, I want to read that. I can only assume and I can only empathize that he probably felt fear all the time, especially being a public figure, being the Beatles manager. Can can you imagine what that must have been like for him to feel this way? Everyone else was having wives and children and having a family. Brian wants to have all these things just like everyone else and he couldn't do that. Publicly anyway, he couldn't do it. He couldn't live his life how he wanted to live. And so I can only imagine he was living in fear a lot and he was probably feeling inadequate. I can only imagine. Brian's drug habit was a direct response to how he was feeling on the inside. And so he was masking his feelings and his emotions, you know, shoving it down really deep inside of him and masking it with drugs. He was prescribed drugs from his doctor. And of course, back then, some of those things, he took um, Preludin, which is one of the things that the Beatles took while they were in Hamburg. And that's an upper which basically makes you stay up for fucking days and days and days and days and days and it makes you go wired. But of course, Brian's drinking and Brian's doing drugs and it's just like the worst combination of things. And so on this day, Peter noticed that Brian sounded really not like himself. And so again, Peter suggested don't drive, take a train back to where you need to go. And Brian replied that he would eat something, he would read his mail, and he would watch Jukebox Jury before calling Peter to tell him which train to meet him at. Peter thought, okay, but Brian never called again, and that was really concerning. And so again, Brian died of an overdose of, I hope I'm saying this right, Carbitol. Anyway, it's a hypnotic drug combining the barbiturate pentobarbital. So he's combining drugs, and he's drinking as well, and that's obviously not a good thing, right? So he died in his locked bedroom on the 27th of August, and he was discovered by his butler. He was trying to knock on Brian's door and saying, Brian, you know, hello, what's going on here? And his door was locked and he couldn't get to Brian. So his butler called Brian's personal assistant, Joanne Peterson. And so Joanne comes through and she failed to wake up Brian too because his door was locked. Like they were knocking on the door. He was not waking up. And so the two of them, his barber and his personal assistant, broke down the door, and that's where they found Brian dead, appearing to be asleep. They didn't know he was dead. They just thought that maybe he was asleep. He had a book opened in his hand, and he had some digestive biscuits on the nightstand. He was kind of strewn about with newspapers all over the place. Like, it was just a sight. And Upon realizing that he was dead, this is weird, but this happened, the staff swept the house for drugs and then they called the cops, okay? Which is like, you can't hide the fact that he died of a drug overdose. The coroner is going to find it. I don't know what they thought about. We got to sweep this house of drugs. Like, what's the point? What's the point? We all know he died of a drug overdose. But anyway, Brian was found on a single bed dressed in his pajamas with various newspaper articles spread over another bed, like all over the place. 
and at the statutory inquest in his death, it was officially ruled an accident caused by a gradual buildup of the drugs, the pills he was taking combined with alcohol. It was revealed that he had taken six pills to sleep, which was probably normal for him, but in combination with alcohol, of course, you're going to get fucked up. You can't combine alcohol and pills. I think everyone knows that, but I think he just wasn't thinking. Of course, you know, who knows? But again, people want to say that it was a suicide. His official ruling was accidental drug overdose. But this is important to note that kind of adds to the factor that it could have been a suicide was. Peter Brown wrote in his memoir that he had once found a suicide note written by Brian and Peter had spoken with Brian about it saying, Brian, I found this suicide note. Like, what? what's going on? Are you okay? And Brian was like, you know, listen, it's okay. Don't worry about it. I wrote this when I wasn't feeling great and I wasn't in my right state of mind. Don't tell this to anybody. He said, don't tell this to anybody. Don't don't tell anybody. It's fine. You know, I'm okay. I wrote this when I wasn't thinking straight. It's okay. The note read, this is all too much and I can't take it anymore. And in the note, he also found a will which Brian left his house and money to his mother and his brother and Peter Brown was also named as a minor beneficiary. So it's interesting, okay, that he found this will and he found this suicide note that Brian had written and he confronted Brian with this. And again, he was like, it's fine. Don't worry about it. I'm not going to do that. I, I took one too many pills. I have no intention of killing myself. It's fine. Don't worry about it. But this is what happens now. And Peter wondered if he had done the right thing by not showing that suicide note to Brian's doctor who probably would have stopped prescribing him the drugs that he was taking. Yeah, it's um awful, awful, awful situation. And I just, I feel like no one really talks about Brian Epstein when they talk about the Beatles because Brian was like the fifth Beatle. Brian was the glue that held them together. Like they were down and out when Brian died. They thought this is not the same anymore. Like they were struggling a lot. So according to Jeffrey Ellis, who was the chief executor of Brian's record store, the day before the funeral, George Harrison had given, he had given one of Brian's good friends, Nat Weiss, a single flower. They thought it was a chrysanthemum, they remembered, and it was wrapped in a newspaper. And this was on behalf of all the Beatles, you know, and George told them to place the flower on Brian's coffin as a final farewell from them. And the Beatles didn't really go to that because, you know, they didn't want to draw media around this whole thing because that's not what they wanted to do. So they did this out of respect. But George kind of came to them on behalf of everyone and said, this is for Brian. Place this on his coffin, please. However, you know, Brian was Jewish and it's customary in Jewish religion that flowers aren't um, accepted at funerals. And so, you know, Jeffrey Ellis and Nat Weiss were like, what do we do? Like, what do we do with this flower? I don't know. And so they were discussing this problem while they were walking back to Brian's grave where they saw that two men were beginning to shovel dirt onto Brian's casket. And Jeffrey wrote, Nat himself, who was Jewish, cast the newspaper package unopened onto Brian's coffin where it was swiftly covered by earth. So that's really sweet. They did put it on his coffin. That's really nice. And a few weeks later, on the 17th of October, all four Beatles attended a memorial service for Brian at the New London Synagogue in St. John's Wood near Abbey Road. And the Bee Gees, actually, in 1968, wrote the song in the summer of his years as a tribute for Brian. Isn't that nice? I thought that was really sweet. I wanted to put that in there too. But yeah, 
this was a media frenzy. Everyone was like, wow, Brian Epstein's dead. Like, what the hell do we do? And so, again, we're circling back around to the album and to the movie where Paul was like, we need to do this. Brian said he gave his blessing. I think we should keep doing it. And so, after some time, they got back into the studio and they started filming again as well. So, the filming took place in September And it's been said that because of the Beatles' heavy use of LSD at this time, the recording process for these songs are marked as aimless and very experimental. I could definitely see that, of course. And the rift between John and Paul was starting to get a lot bigger. Notably, again, because Brian Epstein was no longer there and Paul, I think, stepped into that role. You know, he wasn't doing anything offensive or mean by stepping into that role, I think Paul just naturally slid into that role when Brian passed away. He was already doing that before taking kind of a more direct approach to create the music and get things sorted. Um, So Paul was starting to take more control in his leadership role. And this is where John and Paul started to bash heads. They were arguing over the music and the direction of the film. And at one point, there was a point of contention that Paul's song Hello Goodbye was the A-side single and that John's I Am the Walrus was the B-side. I think John thought his song was better. You know, whatever. A clash of titans, I suppose. You know, two great songs. What can you do about it? But, you know, I get it. The next day on the 18th, the film How I Won the War was premiered and they went to that. And then recording for a magical mystery tour was finally completed on November the 7th. So now I have a couple of backstories, just a little bit for some songs in here that I thought I wanted to cover, just two in specific. So I Am The Walrus, this was John's main contribution to the album. Again, he thought this was like the better song of the two. And it was directly based off of John's experiences with LSD mixed with a poem by Lewis Carroll called The Walrus and the Carpenter. And further inspiration for the song and its lyrics came from when John received a letter from a fan that attended Quarry Bank High School. And Quarry Bank is the high school that John went to, if you remember. So the letter from this schoolboy said that an English teacher at Quarry Bank was awarding scholarships to children that could interpret the Beatles song lyrics. Interesting. And John found this really funny. Like, really? You're dissecting my own lyrics, which in some kind of way means not really a whole lot. And in response, John wanted to write a song that would purposefully confuse people that were trying to dissect their lyrics. And so that's where I Am The Walrus comes from. And Blue Jay Way, this was a song that George contributed to the album, and it was named after a street on Hollywood Hills. George wrote this song after a time when he was in Hollywood and he was waiting for his friend and music publicist to find his way to Blue Jay Way. Well, George was struggling to stay awake from being jet-lagged. And this song in particular is considered the last psychedelic song that George would make, seeing as from here on out, he would veer away from that sound a lot. Which definitely makes sense. And so while in LA, he actually found another hallucinogenic drug other than LSD. And I was pondering what that could have been like acid. Probably right. And this furthered his wish to get into transcendental meditation as well. Like everything. It was pointing at him just going straight into transcendental meditation and getting everyone into it like as much as he possibly could. So Magical Mystery Tour was released as a double EP in the UK. It was not an album. It was a double EP. It was only 
if I'm remembering correctly, eight songs in the UK that was released. This was the first ever of its kind in Britain, a double EP. This was the first ever of its kind done, like released. However, because Capital has to be different, Capital released the album as a full LP. And what did it do? It added non-album singles that were released that year on the album. I don't know why Capital does this. It's so stupid. My recommendation, if you want to buy the Beatles albums, buy the UK pressings. That's how they're originally made. Capital just fudged that all up. So the Beatles were so really not happy that Capital did this because they intended this to only be a double EP, literally. Like, they did not intend for this to be an LP with all these other singles on it. Like, what the hell? So the Beatles were so pissed about this. Yeah, I would be too. Like, it it makes no sense. But that's what they did. The cover for this album was taken during the shoot for I Am the Walrus with the Beatles in animal costumes. Try to figure out which one's which. John is the walrus. Who the others are, I don't know. (laughs) Try to figure that out. It's a fun game to play. Um, This was the first time that their faces were actually obscured on an album cover. And the US version, of course, again, Capital just has to be difficult and make things different. I don't know why they do this. So Capital slightly augmented the cover because they were worried the Beatles aren't showing their faces. Will this cause an issue for American audiences? Because apparently it was a big selling point in America that the Beatles were showing their faces on their album covers. But this was the first time that that wouldn't be the case. So they were like, will this album not sell in America because they don't have their faces shown? It's so stupid. And the American version is pretty much just the cover image a lot smaller, emphasizing the text and the font and the songs on the album front. It's so stupid, to be honest. The original is the better of the two. I'm, in my opinion, when I look at it, the original, just this straight up image, is the better one. The UK one's the better one. So before the album was released, John promoted the album on BBC Radio 1, and during this interview, a Radio Safe edit of I Am The Walrus was played. And the song (laughs) was subsequently banned from UK and US radio stations for a time because it mentioned the word knickers. Like, oh my god, shocking. And Magical Mystery Tour, the album was released on December the 8th, 1968 in the UK, And so the film Magical Mystery Tour was only released in the UK on Boxing Day to an audience of 15 million. And this was savagely ripped apart by critics. Like, it was a flop. It was considered a massive failure. The fans, I think, seemed to like it just fine, but the critics ripped it to shreds. Overall, it really wasn't a big success at all. And so when the U.S. saw that they were getting negative feedback from the film, they were like, right, we're not playing this in the U.S. We're just not doing that. The movie only came out in the U.K., but it was considered an absolute failure. So oops, um, <laughs> we're skirting right along that. The album sales, though, for the album were doing quite well. In the U.S., it went to number one on the Billboard charts, and it was nominated for a Grammy in 1969. And in the UK, the album went to number two and it stayed there in the top 200 until 1969. And also in the US, it had sold under just 2 million copies by the end of 1967. So the album was great. The film was a flop. (laughs) So now Yellow Submarine, the film. This was released in July of 1968. And this was received a lot better by critics and by fans as well because it was an animated feature-length film. 
and because it didn't feature the Beatles in live action as comparative to Magical Mystery Tour, it did a lot better. And I think it, if Yellow Submarine had been a live action film, I think it would have flopped too, to be honest. But it did great. So yeah, the soundtrack album would come out seven months later. I didn't really feel the need to go into that, how they made that album specifically, because in my opinion, I think it's their least memorable album. It is what it is. They come out with a couple of original songs and then they put instrumental tracks on there done by George Martin. It really wasn't a crazy thing at all. So they had the title track, Yellow Submarine, which they already did. And then they had Only a Northern Song, which they already completed. They had All You Need Is Love, which was already done before. And then they just did the seven instrumental tracks. It was really nothing special. But that was Yellow Submarine as a whole. And that is where part two is going to end. Now, part three is going to include a whole lot of stuff, basically from their India trip in 1968 all the way through until the end of the Beatles as we know them. So I hope you guys learned something that you hadn't learned about before. I'm just going to cut it off here so it can flow nicely into part three. Also, I highly recommend you guys watch the Get Back series on Disney Plus by the Beatles. Seriously, watch it. It's amazing. I'm going to go in depth into that in part three. So keep an eye out for that one next Wednesday. Have a great day and I will see you guys later. Bye guys.